Our scripture reading today is from the book of Colossians that we've been traveling through over the last few weeks. Chapter 1. We're going to begin our reading with verse 19 for a little bit of context through 23. The message will come from 21 through 23. You can find this on page 983 of the Pew Bible. And I encourage you now to stand as you're able for the reading of God's word. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we are debtors to your mercy, and we come to your word today to seek that and to find that. So open our hearts. Take the blinders off of our eyes. Enable us today to see Jesus high and lifted up through your word. We ask in his name. Amen. Please be seated. In the world of advertising, those that are successful at it need to convince us that whatever they're selling, we need. And their version of it is far better and more desirable than the other person's version of what it is that they're selling. And they play on our inner desires in order to make promises that really could not possibly be fulfilled in their product. Recently, the family went to a movie and during the previews we were presented with an advertisement for the theater chain in which we were attending. A glamorous Hollywood actress strode forward on the screen with very emotive and powerful music playing in the background and she said, we came to this place for magic, to laugh, to cry, to care, because we need that all of us, that indescribable feeling we get when the lights begin to dim, and we go somewhere we've never been before, not just entertained, but somehow reborn together. Dazzling images on a huge silver screen, sound that I can feel, somehow heartbreak feels good in a place like this. Our heroes feel like the best part of us, and stories feel perfect and powerful because here they are. Well, after that, I was ready to walk the aisle and commit myself to the movie theater. I mean, maybe my expectations are a little bit too low, but when I go to see a movie, I'm not expecting a life-transforming experience in which I'm going to be born again. I'm just hoping to be entertained for a couple hours by a well-produced, well-done movie. 
So maybe they overpromise just a smidge in their advertisement. But if we're honest, we understand that the marketing department is tapping into something. Something deep within us, in the human heart, touching on some of the deepest needs that we have in life. These foundational needs of the human condition show themselves in our rebellion to a holy God. We set up idols in our lives to fulfill the needs in our lives that only the Creator and the Redeemer, which we've looked at for the last two weeks, can fulfill. Only Jesus can fill those voids and fill that spot. And this rebellion in our hearts is deep-seated in the fiber of who we are. It goes all the way back to our first parents at the beginning of time. The Colossians needed to be reminded of where they came from and who they were in Christ in order for Paul to move forward at this point in the letter in his instruction to them. To this point, Paul has laid down a very strong foundation from which to address the real needs of the Colossians and us. First, he expressed his gratitude to God for their faith, for their love for one another, for their hope in eternity. And then he prayed for them. He told them that he wanted them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that they would be fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit, being strengthened with all power that he would provide so that they could persevere with joy. And then Paul reminds them to be thankful, to be thankful for the gift of salvation that they have. But then he abruptly interrupts that personal, those personal remarks by presenting this Christ-exalting hymn that we've looked at over the last two weeks, establishing at the outset Jesus' supremacy over everything in the universe as the one who created it all and who is redeeming it all. And after establishing this strong foundation, the apostle then begins teaching them in the gospel of grace and assuring them that Jesus alone is sufficient. So right on the heels of, of the hymn that we've unpacked in verses 15 through 10, 20, which speaks of Christ reconciling to himself all things, Paul gets very practical and he describes what that reconciliation looks like for the individual, for the believer. Looking back at verse 21, he addresses us in the second person. And you, who once in the past were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Paul begins with the reality of who we were before God reconciled us to himself. If there is a need for reconciliation, then it follows that there is a break in relationship. We were alienated from God. We were hostile towards him in our minds, and we were doing evil. It's a very harsh way in which Paul describes our condition, but it's the reality of who we were. Before we come to Christ, our sinful condition is hardwired in us. We don't just act out our momentary feelings. Those evil deeds come from a hostility of mind, something that is part of who we are. And that's why salvation must be a miracle. It must be God 
interceding and transforming the heart and changing us from within. There's no way that we're going to overcome evil by sheer willpower apart from the working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives. We must be given a new heart in order to flee evil. Without it, we're hopeless to act in righteousness. So when you observe evil acts, doesn't, you don't have to look very far. Turn on the television. They're all over the place. But there are at least, I think, two things that we can take away from that in these opening remarks of Paul as we witness these things in terms of how we frame them in our minds. First, to be reminded that without Christ, which you obtained only by grace, you were in the same situation as the wicked that is around us. Alienated from God, at hostility with him, and doing evil acts. And when you observe that in others, remember that they haven't received the grace that you have. We shouldn't be surprised that those who are in hostility towards God in their minds are behaving badly in their actions. This is actually what we should expect to see. Any restraint of evil actions exhibited in the world is, is not the default natural position. It is divine grace at work that evil is restrained. And when God judges a people for wickedness, he removes those restraints and allows the natural condition to exhibit and express itself. This is why Jesus tells his church that we must be salt and light to stave off corruption. God uses our influence and our testimony to the watching world to restrain wickedness in our world. And when the church ceases to be salt and light, corruption will take hold and judgment will follow and fall upon the people. I believe that we see a progression here in these opening remarks as well, these three aspects of our old condition. First is the reality that we were alienated from God, separated from him. No ability to communicate or to fellowship with him. Lack of communion in relationships leads to hostility in mind. Resentment flows from our isolation and separation from God. It's a natural progression. Ultimately, resentment, if mulled over long enough in our minds, results in evil deeds. And that hostility of mind will manifest itself into actions. We are in desperate need of reconciliation to God. It's the only answer to our hopelessness and our situation. And so God provides a way. He provides a way for us through Christ. Paul continues in verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. All three verses in our passage today form one long sentence that the Apostle Paul is often famous for. Here in verse 22, we arrive at the primary verb of the whole sentence structure. He has reconciled. Paul shifts our attention away from our condition, apart from Christ in the past, to his provision for us in the present. 
our confession of faith today, as was pointed out, we read the shorter catechism questions dealing with our effectual calling. What does it mean practically for us when God saves us and calls us to himself? How does that work itself out? Well, our confession expresses it in three distinctives, justification, adoption, and sanctification. And while in our text today it's not necessarily a one-for-one -one correlation, I do believe Paul is expressing all three of these when describing the present reality for those who have been reconciled to God. Think about it. First, the very act of reconciliation speaks to adoption. We are part of the family of God. We are no longer apart from God, but rather in Christ we are adopted into his family and reconciled with him. Next, to be holy speaks of our sanctification, our becoming like Jesus and, becoming, and being set apart for that. And finally, to be blameless and above reproach speaks of our justification, that God has taken away our sin and he has made us blameless and above reproach in Christ's righteousness. So foundationally, Paul instructs us that our adoption, our reconciliation has been afforded us in his body of flesh by his death. Notice that phrase. He brings the Colossians right back to the closing phrase of the hymn that came just before this. And through him, Jesus Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. We read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, that Jesus Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So the Colossians, they were being told by false teachers that there were other spiritual mediating sources that they needed to tap into, such as angels or other spirits, in order to rise to a higher level of spirituality and to reach God in, his, in a supreme way. Well, people have always been fascinated with the spiritual realm and have assumed that there is something more to be obtained, a higher, higher level of spirituality if we just tap into the spirit world. None other than the brilliant Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis involved himself in the occult before coming to Christ, that he might attain greater knowledge, even as a brilliant scholar in the spirit world. One could argue that there are certain church groups in our culture who are dangerously close to seeking extra spiritual sources of mediation and revelation. But Christ's redemptive plan, Paul makes it very practical, was accomplished in his body of flesh. A man to represent men and women before God who suffered the effects of our sin in his true body of flesh and blood. Not in some ethereal, only spiritual way, but in his body. This, of course, highlights the importance of the Lord's Supper. For in faith we set apart physical elements representing Jesus' flesh and blood through which he blesses and ministers his grace to us. The sacrament reminds us that Jesus took on flesh. And he continues to have a body and will 
forever. The reconciliation he provides in his body of flesh by his death is more than enough for our rebellion. We need not seek other things to add on to what Christ has done and finished on our behalf. Next, Paul invokes the language of sacrificial offering. He uses worship language that his readers would have understood in that context. He speaks of Jesus Christ's present provision enabling him to present us to God holy and blameless. Another way of translating blameless would be without blemish and above reproach. This is the same language that's used concerning offering a perfect sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament sacrificial system or sin offering. Peter makes this important connection for us as well to Christ's sacrifice in his first epistle. We read that we were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And Paul says similarly in the parallel book of Ephesians that God chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption. If you belong to Jesus, then that is your present reality. You have been justified, adopted, and sanctified. This is how God sees you. Do you see yourself as God sees you? There's a lot of debate in our society right now, isn't there, about identity and how we should identify ourselves. You know, I'm not so concerned with how those outside Christ self-identify. That's up to them. I am concerned with how we, God's children, express our identity. We should not identify by our sins. Rather, we should identify as those who have been adopted into God's family, as those who are holy and blameless and perfectly righteous in God's eyes. Recently, I heard a message by Kevin DeYoung in which he talked about baptism. He described baptism as a naming ceremony for the believer. Not that we receive the name given to us by our parents at baptism, but rather that we are named among God's covenant people. We no longer identify with the old self of sin. We have the seal of Christ placed upon us, and our identity is now that of Christian, being of Christ, having our Savior's name placed upon us through a sign and a seal. This is why we baptize our children. Yes, they will need to profess Christ in their own confession of faith. But until that time, we rest upon the promise of God for their salvation and set them apart as those who are part of the covenant family. We don't treat them as outsiders. 
We point them to Christ all through their lives in humble reliance upon God with the expectation that he will adopt them into the family even as he has done so graciously for us. If you were baptized into God's family and your baptism is confirmed by the confession of your heart and mouth in repentance and full reliance upon Jesus Christ for your salvation, then you are named with Christ. You identify with him. You have his mark upon you. To identify with past or present sins or anything other than Jesus Christ is to bring him down to our level rather than rising to the position he has afforded us in him. In verse 22, Paul points us to the future hope of our reconciliation to God when Jesus will present us holy and blameless and above reproach before the throne of heaven. On that day, no one will accuse you there. God will not accuse you. The law will not accuse you. Your inner voice will not accuse you. Satan will not accuse you. Because Jesus is more than enough for our rebellion in his provision of our adoption, our justification, and our sanctification. In our final point, we see the condition for reconciliation with God. Reading in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The conditions that Paul lays out for being reconciled to God are faith and perseverance. Of course, if you've been around here for any length of time, or even have a very small understanding of the doctrines of grace, your alarm bell should be going off right now. And you should be thinking, okay, where's he going with this? So before you tar and feather me and run me out of town, let's look at what Paul says from a biblical understanding. Yes, we affirm that no one can earn their own way to heaven by persevering in their own strength. We believe that once Jesus saves us, we are secure in him and cannot fall away. So how do these conditions that Paul gives jive with our you of TULIP, unconditional election? Well, let's start with asking ourselves the question, this question. If someone who has professed Christ later rejects him, would we assume that that person will persevere based on a prayer they said at one time in their past or a previous profession of Christ? There are actually a number of individuals in the news today who at one time were national and international evangelical leaders who recently have publicly denounced their faith as they go through what is termed a deconstruction of their past beliefs. So what are we to make of that? Well, Jesus tells us what to make of it. 
in Matthew 10. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So there is a condition of perseverance. That's not the question. The question is, who provides for that perseverance? Me or Jesus? Remember how Paul prayed for them in the beginning of the book. Look back at verse 11. That they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Whose strength and might is given to us for our perseverance and endurance? God's in Christ. It's not of us. He provides all of it. It's our salvation and our endurance and perseverance. He calls us to persevere and he provides it for us. Take a look again at question 36 of the shorter catechism that we worked through earlier. What are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from these three things are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, and perseverance therein to the end. Jesus provides all of this for us, and we can rest in him for our perseverance. It's not up to us. Let me share a familiar scenario, which you've even heard from this pulpit before by way of illustration. One of the great delights as an adult is to receive a gift from a child. Right? Perhaps it's a a child to a parent. Maybe it's a niece or a nephew that gives the gift. A child of a very close friend. Or perhaps even a church member's child who gives another church member a gift. Well, you know very well that that child had no resources to purchase this gift or to even purchase the materials to make the gift or the card. And if it was a card, they likely had a lot of help and even constructing it and making it happen before it was given to you. But that reality doesn't take any of the joy away from receiving the gift from the child, even though they had nothing really to offer you from a standpoint of resources. We don't laugh it off and demean the gift because someone else provided it. Jesus provides for our faith and perseverance to the end. But this in no way takes away his delight and pleasure in our obedience, nor does it negate our responsibility to do so. As we conclude, let me provide two more points of application in Jesus being more than enough for our rebellion. Our sinful condition of alienation, hostility of mind, and doing evil acts, it hasn't completely left us, has it? We still struggle with the old man, even though our reality is what we have just stated in Christ. So if Christ has sought us out for reconciliation, 
it follows that we, as his followers, should seek reconciliation with one another. Alienation and isolation can happen when you're with somebody all the time, can't it? The progression that we see in verse 21 is not foreign to us. Sharon and I have experienced it in our marriage, as I'm sure many of you have. The seed of discontentment begins. In my case, maybe my wife isn't enough for me at the time. So that alienation begins. Avoiding conversations, living under the same roof, but not really interacting much. Then it grows into a hostile mind to resentment, finally resulting in evil actions and bad behavior towards one another. Taking out the hostility on the ones who were supposed to love the most. It can happen with siblings, brothers and sisters, or the parent-child relationship, close friends, fellow church members. But it all goes back to our relationship with the Father, doesn't it? If the gospel is alive and real in that relationship, if we are communing with him, abiding in him, then the reconciliation that we have with him will spill out and over into the rest of our relationships. So if you're experiencing estrangement in a relationship with a loved one, a friend, a church member, a co-worker, then you aren't in right relationship with the Father either. Aren't you glad that the Father didn't wait on you to seek him out for reconciliation? It would never have happened. But instead, he chased you down in your sin and provided for your reconciliation. We should do the same in our relationships. Don't wait on the other person to seek you out. Follow the example of the Lord and be the initiator. Be the one who is always seeking reconciliation. If not, then you're likely seeing that alienation growing in your heart, becoming resentment and hostility in the mind towards God and others, and ultimately it will result in acts of wickedness and evil towards one another. We have been reconciled to God Adopted, sanctified, and justified. So let's live like it. Let's walk in a manner worthy of our king, as Paul prayed for the Colossians. And finally, earlier in the week, I sent out a list of questions that some of you may have seen in preparation for today's message. And here they are. Do guilt and shame ever paralyze you? Are you fully convinced that God loves you? Can you say that you have peace of conscience? Do you possess inner joy? And in the end, will you really make it to heaven? Is Jesus enough for these questions? Well, remembering that you have been reconciled to God, adopted by him, that you have been made holy, sanctified, that you're blameless and above reproach, justified, let's revisit the answer to the catechism question, number 36. The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from 
justification, adoption, and sanctification, look at them, are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, and perseverance therein to the end. Our catechism says that when we struggle with guilt and shame, wondering whether or not we are loved by God, struggling with being at peace in our conscience, of having inner joy, the fear of making it to heaven in the end, then we should remember who we are and what Christ has done for us, where our identity is. We are perfectly righteous, a child of God and joint heirs with Jesus, and set apart for his eternal pleasure, being made more and more like him with each passing hour, until you are made perfect in him at the end of your journey here on earth. Focus your heart and mind on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Enjoy him as he's presented in his word. Commune with him in prayer and fellowship here with Jesus and his people. Be strengthened with all his might in your walk with him. For Jesus is more than enough. Let's pray. Father, how astounding that when we were alienated from you, hostile towards you in our mind and doing evil acts, that you interrupted, interceded, invaded our lives and saved us, pointing the hell-bound sinner towards your grace and towards heaven. So, Father, we rejoice in that and thank you for that. May we never get over that and may we constantly be reflecting upon the goodness of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, may that then enable us to have peace of conscience, to have assurance of your love and assurance of our perseverance. And then in turn, may that enable us to serve you with all of our hearts and all that we are. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.